Hello, I am Donna Freeman, the founder of Yoga in My School, and this is the Yoga in My School podcast. I appreciate you coming and having a listen. Thank you for your likes, your shares, your comments, and your ratings. It truly is a blessing as it helps others to find us. The purpose of the Yoga in My School podcast is to empower you to share yoga and mindfulness with youth. Through the archives and this episode in particular, I know that you will receive inspiration, knowledge, and tools to help you do so. We also are big fans of building community, and we love finding people who are doing amazing things in the kids' yoga community worldwide. So if you know of someone, or maybe you are someone, who are doing something incredible and you'd like to share it, feel free to reach out. You can email me, Donna, at yoganmyschool.com with ideas for upcoming episodes. Appreciate you listening. Have a wonderful day, and enjoy this episode. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everybody. At least it's good morning here. I'm up in um, Alberta, Canada. My name is Donna Freeman, and this is the Yoga in My School podcast. Thank you for listening, and if you're enjoying the show and the podcast, be sure to share this with a friend, um, especially today's podcast, because anxiety in kids has become quite a phenomenon lately and it is growing by leaps and bounds and today we're going to be chatting with gail silver and gail silver is just about to publish another awesome book she's got quite a few under her belt now but her newest book is called mindful bee and the worry tree and this book addresses anxiety in kids in a way that really makes it approachable and manageable, and the manageable is a big thing. It gives all kinds of tools. But let me tell you a little bit about Gail Silver. She is an amazing, amazing person. So she has been in the yoga and kids mindfulness world for quite a while. I met her in person at the National Kids Yoga Conference a number of years ago, and I use her, her I, think, I think it's her most famous book, but she's got a number of them, but Aunt Anger, uh, is a fabulous book that you can use in kids yoga classes and mindfulness classes and teaches children how to deal with big emotions and all this type of thing. Um, she is highly active in bringing yoga and mindfulness into schools, and we're going to get into her projects during our interview and learn all kinds of really great things on how you can empower youth and children to be their best selves. So without further ado, Gail, how's it going today? It's going great, Donna. Thank you so much for that very heartwarming introduction. I'm really happy to be here, and and hello, everybody. Tell our listeners a little bit about how, because you have an interesting background. (laughs) Tell how you went from leading law to writing books about mindfulness. Uh, sure. You know, it, it might seem like a bit of an odd path, but it was really a natural and somewhat fluid one for me. Um, I, had been, I had been working as a child advocate lawyer in, a, in Philadelphia for the public defender's office. And at that time, I was also teaching yoga and mindfulness in the evenings and on the weekends um, as, a, as a side job and devotion. And it wasn't long before I, I realized that um, I might serve my child clients better Uh, on the mat than I was in the courtroom. And it's not that I didn't love my work um, in the defender's office, but there were just a lot of people that were doing that that same kind of work very well. And 
there weren't a lot of people that were um, that were meeting kids on the mat with yoga and mindfulness back then. I think it was 1999, and um, certainly not in Philadelphia. And there weren't too many of us across the country. And um, you know, I, I had a good relationship with a lot of my clients. I knew they came to me to talk. I knew they felt comfortable sharing with me. And um, I, I sort of, you know, I, I, I took a little window to develop a curriculum and, and leave the public defender's office and, and do a lot of volunteer work and, and, and to just sort of devote my time to figuring out what worked and did what wouldn't work curriculum-wise until I was able to establish Yoga Child and continue to really expand our programming with, um, with children in residential treatment facilities and in, um, in, in the foster care system and in, in the area schools. And during this time, I also started to have a few of my own kids. And um, this is where I think the real shift towards writing came in because, you know, there's nothing quite like being a parent that requires you to really take a good long look in the mirror. And um, I think, you know, anyone who, who has kids probably knows what I'm talking about there. And as I was sort of working with kids in, in schools and different settings and also trying to raise my own children, um, one of one of my kids really brought um, she brought a lot of power with her to, to the table, and that she, as a young child she tantrumed a lot. She had big emotions, and um, in trying to figure out how to help her regulate her emotions and express herself healthfully, um, and and keep our relationship healthy and strong, um, I had to ask myself, well, how do I manage my own emotions and my own anger and my own my own big big ticket items. And I realized that I didn't really have a game plan for that. I had made it that far in my life. I was a trained yoga and mindfulness teacher, but I still was sort of floundering a little bit. And I, I used that time to dig deeper into my own mindfulness roots and my own mindfulness practice and spent some more quiet time with my Thich Nhat Hanh literature and um, listening to Thich Nhat Hanh talks and studying with Thich Nhat Hanh. And um, he's, he's a wonderful uh, venerable, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, uh, Vietnamese um, Buddhist monastic who teaches engaged mindfulness and has communities set up throughout America and the world to help uh, mindful devotees do this and incorporate the practices into their lives. In any event, he had this great, um, great take on how to manage anger. And some of you may be familiar with it, but basically what he had said was, um, we need to we need to treat our anger gingerly as if it's as if it's a, a baby and hold it and, and, and nurture it and sort of take it in our arms and take good care of our anger. And that that metaphor changed the game for me entirely. And I think it, it was that that mm. really made me put the book down and look out the window and say, Wow. And I was soon able to take that metaphor and change my way of relating to myself and relating to others and relating to all conflicts that were presented to me. And then I felt charged with the responsibility of figuring out what a way to take this to um, my daughter in a way that would be accessible to her, but moreover to children throughout the world so that they don't find themselves at you know, age 30 or 35 like I was trying to figure out how to, how to express themselves, how to be angry appropriately. Um, in the workplace, in school, at home, with a parent, with a friend, whatever it may be, and it, you know, it was it was it wasn't more than a few seconds before I remembered back to my um, my early childhood, and I remembered 
picture books and literature that had stayed with me. And it's interesting, but I always remember the illustrations before I remember the message of the book or the, or the words in the book. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I, w- I wish that I could, I wish that I could illustrate because I can see all of this, but I, but I can't. So I'll write these. I can write this. I can, I can make these stories. I can make these lessons and take them and put them into stories that are, will hopefully be accessible for children and easily recalled by them so that they can go to it on their own when they need to, uh, whether the book is there or whether it's just in their memory when they're older. And um, that's what I set out to do, and, that, and that's sort of the path. And, I, and I'm still going. I can't really stop. <laughs> That's awesome. I really like that. And that's so true about the images sticking with you from your childhood books because they're, they're so powerful, right? I, and yeah. the one that sticks to my mind, one of the images from my childhood is Go Dog Go. And uh-huh. that picture of the end of the dog party on the top of the tree. And how many, how many hours did I spend studying that image? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Right. So the images I mean, stick with you. Right? Mm-hmm. And then they lead you back to whatever it was in the story that made you feel so good. And, and it's, yep. it's, it's, it's magical in that way. Mine is the snowy day. I, that's always with me. Remember the red mm. and the orange and yellow and the little yep. snowsuit with a pointed hat and the melting snowball? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> All right. Uh, we could have a whole, I'm sure we could get together with a whole bunch of people and have a, a lovely time over some tea and coffee, just reminiscing about that alone. Um, but this brings us to the imagery in your newest book, which is really, really powerful. So your latest book is Mindful Be in the Worry Tree. It's being released next week, April 16th. And, um, and you've got this, this willow tree. Can you mm. talk a little bit about the, the willow tree in, in your book? I sure can, and I'm so glad you asked because um, I really love that willow tree, and I, I've a, there's, a, there's a lot to say about it. Um, so reel me in if, I, if I'm going on too long because I could talk about this willow tree for probably all of our time. I um, So the willow tree is it, it's sort of, it's, as you said, it's, it's a metaphor for, for a bee's anxiety that she experiences. And when I was trying to figure out the... Um, what was how how I wanted to represent these anxiety in this book? I knew I wanted um, I wanted I wanted to choose a, choose um, an image or a metaphor that could be realistic for B, not so much for me, but something that B as a child could realistically look at and see as and see as her anxiety. So it needs to be something in her environment. And you know, the book on the opening page of, of the book, we've got this. Um, beautiful willow tree that she's swinging under. She's on this, you know, one of those wooden uh, sort of homemade swings and she plays under the tree and she plays make-believe there and she's happy. And then as soon as we turn the page, she's stuck up in her bedroom and uh, we don't quite yet know what's, we don't know what's wrong yet, but we're going to imagine that it's anxiety given the title of the book. And she can see this tree from her bedroom. So it's something that when she's stuck up in her place, she can look out the window and see. So this is something that Bee chooses. But as the creator of Bee and the creator of the story, I, I wanted it to be a willow tree because um, I think that the tree, for a couple of reasons, one is that the tree really, it can um, embody Bee and Bee can embody the tree and that her body, her physical body can be the trunk of the tree and the arms, 
uh, her arms and her limbs can easily be represented with the outstretched limbs of the, of the tree as it sort of takes motion and, and comes to life. And then you've got all of these, um, these beautiful leaves of a willow tree that could so easily represent her hair and as that sort of, sort of becomes a little more chaotic as anxiety takes place. So I thought it made for a great, um, a great embodiment of bee. But even more than all of that, what we know about um, a tree is that, you know, it takes root as a tiny seed and as it's watered and nurtured and fed, it grows. And the same is really true of anxiety. It starts out as a tiny seed of an idea. And as we feed it, it grows and becomes bigger and um, more, I say, more suffocating, really. Um, you know, mm-hmm. along these lines, there was a, um, I do have to share that when I was a little girl, um, I, I grew up in a suburban town in Philadelphia, and across the street from my house was a big old Tudor-style house. And in the front of their house, they had this giant willow tree, and it was gorgeous. It was sort of like an attractive nuisance to me as a child. And I wasn't really friends with mm-hmm. the kids who lived in this house, and the parents were never around, and we weren't invited to play in their yard as we were in all of our neighbors' yards. But I can remember one day sort of sneaking across the street and trying to swing from its branches. Um, but because that house also was sort of off limits to me and a little bit scary, there was something creepy about about the tree and the yard too in that that tree represented two things to me. It represented, you know, beauty and curiosity, but it also represented something that could be quite frightening. And um, when uh, Mindful Bee received a review last week from um, – from, from, from Booktrib, and it was, it, was, it was a lovely review. Thank you, Booktrib, if you're listening out there. But interestingly enough, the person who reviewed it um, had a whole different take on the tree as a metaphor, and I love their take on it. And I, I, and I think, you know, maybe on some level I'd like to believe I was thinking this, but what the reviewer had said was that um, on one level that tree represents a place that's very happy, for, for B in a place where she goes to have fun, and then on the next page, the tree is the source of her anxiety, a sort of alluding to the idea that the very things that bring us joy and pleasure are also the same things that can bring us anxiety, especially in a child. So we would normally think of anxiety, you know, for people who don't suffer with anxiety, we might think of anxiety as, oh, well, you worry about things that maybe, you know, are, are, are scary to the average person, but... Um, for a child, they worry about the very things they want to go and do, such as go to school or go on an outing or go on a trip or go to the store or go to a party or go to a friend's house or have their own birthday party, which is what Bee's trying to do, just go to her own birthday party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I read that review that, uh, and I, I really liked the, the connections that they made. And isn't it true that so many things that we love – also are things that we obsess about and uh, are concerned with and spend a lot of mental energy on. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I thought it was beautiful. I was like, oh, okay, and then it runs out of control. Um, so <laughs> here we've got this, this sweet little girl um, that is up in her room and she's looking out the window and branches are kind of taking over. <laughs> and, and then she comes up with some tools. You provide her with ways in which she can manage this. And these are mindfulness tools. And so how can mindfulness counteract anxiety? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, it's, 
It's really such a simple and basic answer, right? For people who practice mindfulness, you know this, you know this already, but when we're practicing mindfulness, we're placing our attention on our full attention on 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 something, right? We're pra- and usually that something is our breath, a, the sensory experience of our breath. Uh, and if our attention is on is completely right. We're giving all of our attention to um, the sensation of our breath, or in these case, um, first it's the sound of the birds in the sky and the feel of the the, the coolness in the air, or the wind in the tree, or whatever it may be. Um, what is her mind not on? Right? Her mind is not on her worries, on the things that are causing her anxiety, because we know that. Cognitively, we can only think about one thing at a time. As much as we'd like to convince ourselves that we can do two things at once well or we can have a phone to our ear and be listening to someone else, uh, we really can't. We can only really do two cognitive, only do, sorry, one cognitive thing at a time. And by bringing our attention to something that's soothing and rhythmic and quieting, we're easing the physical symptoms of the anxiety and we're not giving the anxious thoughts any airplay at all. So it's really just this idea of, um, of, of there's this moment, right, in the, in, the, in, this, in the story where B has this aha moment before she practices uh, mindfulness where she says, well, wait, what if I choose what I think about? What if I choose what I think about? And in that moment, she's realizing that her anxiety is not in charge. She's in charge. She, mm-hmm. can, she can make the choice. And I think that's a crucial part of this that sometimes might get overlooked when we're using mindfulness to manage, um, to, to manage our difficult emotions. Because sometimes if you're in the middle of, of a panic attack or having anxiety and someone tells you, well, just breathe, you might look at them and say, well, first of all, I am breathing, right? Because <laughs> if you're not breathing, then we really got problems. But what they really mean is pay attention to your breath. But that person doesn't feel like they can in that moment because they're too riddled with anxiety and they feel their heart pounding or they feel their throat tightening or they feel sick to their stomach or they feel like they're going to throw up or whatever their physical symptoms might be, but they can't stop thinking about that to, to experience their breath. So it's about taking a step backwards and realizing, wait, that the, the thought comes before the emotion. So if you're having anxiety, you had a thought before you had all the physical symptoms. And if we go back to where that thought was and we say, wait, I'm going to choose to think about something else, and then we let that something else be our breath, the feel of the wind, the sound of the birds, and we, and we, we sort of, um, we're almost kicking anxiety out of the way. There's no room for it because we're thinking about something else. And that's really the beauty of mindfulness and that it's available to us in that way to make whatever we're experiencing um, feel a little better, a little easier, right? It's not going to make it go away. It's not going to fix it. It's not going to cure anything, but it's going to give us that present moment capability to be okay in that moment so that we can do what it is that we want to do. Yeah, I love that, right? And it's just that, that that empowerment of you are in charge of your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that is yeah. really revolutionary for a lot of people. I think so. I think so. And we have to remind ourselves of this a lot, right? Mindfulness is a practice, even for those of us that practice all the time. The reason 
the monastics mm-hmm. who do this all the time are so skilled at it is because it's what they do all day. They practice all day long in an engaged way or in a more concrete way. And I think it's the more we practice, the more accessible that tool, that skill is to us. So our, our practice in, um, you know, a, a, a formal practice will then inform our more engaged practice when we need it in other times. Yes, exactly. Right. I, um, for a number of years, I, I practiced karate with one of my children and the, the, um, the sensei would say to us, she goes, practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. You repeat mm. and repeat and repeat so that you mm. know how to do things well in the moment. Yes. Right? And it's, I like your that. deal never, you know, perfection isn't, isn't the goal. It's, it's the familiarity of being able to do something when you need to do it. And it's like, oh, yeah. okay, that works for me. Yeah, I like that. All right. Now, you are highly involved with bringing um, yoga and mindfulness into the schools in the Philadelphia area. Can you tell us a little bit about your new program that you are launching, the School Mindfulness Project, and um, the focus that it has on Philadelphia's underserved schools? Yes, I would love to. And thank you for um, giving me an opportunity to talk about this a little bit, because I I care deeply about this, and I think it's so important. I mean, you, one would have to have been living under a rock for the last decade to not realize how yoga and mindfulness has sort of um, really gained popularity in school-based settings. Um, for those of us that have been doing this for a long time, we know that and we see that. Um, but the School Mindfulness Project was developed I, really in response to what I was witnessing that was not working well in the school yoga and mindfulness market in Philadelphia. And I'm not criticizing any programs here because I I have one of those programs that maybe um, is not doing what it needs to be doing. And it's not through any fault of the programs, but it's really about um, the the need for a systemic approach to integrating uh, these practices into, into our schools. And with the School Mindfulness Project, what it aims to do is to provide um, really provide the opportunity to really shift the language and the climate in a whole school by providing services to every mind and every body in that school so that um, teachers are immersed in programming uh, before students are provided with a 12-week foundational course in in mindfulness Mm -hmm. and mindful movements that takes place in their classroom. And the teachers are then um, part of that part of that group where the students are learning. So teachers and students are learning together as a classroom community after the teachers have had their own immersive programming to support them. And then we move on to um, to a phase where we equip the teachers and the students to maintain these practices on an ongoing basis after we have moved on to another school, uh, a neighboring school, hopefully, so that the teachers become equipped to uh, integrate elements of what they've been practicing into their classroom on a regular basis with their students. And the students are empowered to have a very active role in that as well, so it's not as though um, the teachers are telling them what to do. It becomes almost a cooperative, but with the teachers having been trained. And because that's not even enough, this program 
um, provides uh, at the end a month-long integration period where the educators stay on site to assist the teachers in the classroom as they're integrating it into their classroom life to make sure that they are adapting it in a meaningful way. Um, there are there are parts of this program that reach reach students who might be um, on in-school suspension or otherwise on out-of-school suspension so that they're integrated in the programming when they return to the classroom. There are parts of this program that, um, that really speak to the whole school where there will be inter, in, in, inter and intra-classroom activities that take place from different grade levels throughout the school and between different grade levels throughout the school. And then ultimately there's an optional um, part of the program, which really are phase five of these five phases, that a, where a school can elect to have uh, one of our educators stay on site to teach weekly on the mat yoga classes in a dedicated yoga room in the school, which would be separate and different than what we've been doing in the classrooms with the students. Uh, so it's, it's a very comprehensive program, and it's, it's really, um, in, in my mind, and based on really a careful retrospective of what I've seen take place in schools in the city for the, la for the last, uh, last 20 years, in my mind it's needed because it's unfair and really not effective or as effective as it can be to provide uh, a yoga class to grades three and four for 10 weeks or mindfulness programming to the eighth graders for, for 12 weeks. Where does that leave the rest of the students? And how effective can those students be when they start interacting with other teachers and other students in the school who aren't speaking their language? And then what happens when the programming's over and the kids want to continue to practice but they don't remember how or there's no one to guide them? Uh, there's no follow-through and no follow-up. There, there's so many holes that the more traditional programming is leaving, and, and not because these traditional programs don't want to do more, but because they're limited in their ability to do more because of funding um, and, and, and what the school has time for in their schedule. So this organization really looks to, look to a school that wants to dive in to holistic programming for its staff and its students and its whole school community, uh, and a, a school that's really looking for those, uh, those, those, those those shifts towards successful outcomes where we can really lay a foundation uh, for, for improved social emotional health, improved physical well-being, and improved academic well-being throughout the school community. Love it. You've just described the ideal program, <laughs> right? I know. Say, well, how, right? how should I do this? What, how, what should I do? How can we make this work? And, and I pretty much lay out what you said. And they're like, oh, um, can you just come in and, and teach the grade sixes for, you know, once a month for the next three months? And I'm like, yeah, I can. <laughs> I can do that because I'd rather, you know, do a little bit. But what, exactly. you, you're, what you're describing is a really beautiful, comprehensive um, project. And I wish you all the best with it. And kudos to every school that that joins the School Mindfulness Project, they will be so far ahead with that social, emotional, the academic, uh, just everything. Yay. Yay, yay, yay. Thanks, Susanna. We'll, we'll take you up on that. We need, we need um, all of the good words and all of the good vibes. It's Obviously, it's like sending in a yoga and mindfulness SWAT team to a school with the number of educators we send in. And because it's a nonprofit organization, we hope to arrive at schools um, 
about 90% funded, 95% funded, uh, so that the schools do not have to raise any, really don't have to raise very much funding to support the programming. But fundraising is it's a beast in and of itself, and it's, it's, it's a full-time job in and of itself other than running the organization. So we have a lot of work to do. Awesome. Well, I wish you all the best. Now, we've got a giveaway. Um, and so oh, we're giving away, or Gail is giving away, uh, she's been very generous, she's giving away a copy of Mindful Be in the Worry Tree to one of our lucky listeners. Um, and you can, um, well, first of all, you can find Gail at gailsilver.com and go check her out and her other offerings and all the amazing work that she's doing with the School Mindfulness Project. What's the School Mindfulness Project's website? The school mindfulness org. There you go. All right. Pretty easy to find. Um, and to join the giveaway, it'll be posted on my website, on Yoga in My School. You can join there. It'll be posted on Facebook because you get a like, Gail, um, on the Onger Facebook page, which is kind of Gail's author Facebook page. So you get a like yeah. that. That'll get you an entry. You can tweet about it and make sure that you're doing an at Gail P. Silver or at Donna K. Freeman. Um, that way we know that you, <laughs> you're tweeted. <laughs> so we'll, we'll add you to the list. <laughs> you got to circle back, folks, because it's hard to keep track of everybody. Uh, yeah. And just definitely share. Share this, this beautiful new book with, with the kids that you're working with, with schools. I can see it being a huge help for counselors. Um, for parents, um, a great so. bedtime story as they, um, and leading to all kinds of uh, additional discussions. Thank you, Donna. I hope so. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, so anything else you'd like to add for people as they're winding up their listening here with us today? I think there's one there's one thing I would like to share, and I, I think it's important. I just want to say that um, as you share Mindful Be with the children in your world, I think that it's important to recognize that there are going to be listeners around you who might not suffer with anxiety if you're doing a reading with a classroom or with a group. And I think um, this book, while it serves as a model for kids who are struggling with anxiety and worries, it also helps to sort of breed a little bit of awareness and compassion for those children among the kids who might not suffer with these, um, with these issues. And for kids who have anxiety, they often, the anxiety, their anxiety becomes a source of their anxiety, and it feeds on itself because they worry what their friends are going to think or they worry about what happens if I have a panic attack in public. People are going to, to make fun of me. I'll be more isolated. And I think using this as a, as, a, as a tool to also let other kids be a little bit informed about what life might be like for someone who worries a lot, um, it, it could be a real effective use of, of this book in, gr in group settings. So I did want to just, just share that piece. We can make the world a, a more compassionate place through our, through our work together. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure chatting with you today. For our listeners, I appreciate you listening. Please share and like and comment and do all those lovely social things. That helps other people know that this is a worthwhile um, investment of their time to listen to the Yoga in My School podcast and to support authors, um, those invested and really passionate about bringing yoga, um, mindfulness, tools, two kids of all ages. So 
So it's been an absolute pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Namaste.